Hello, everyone, and welcome to AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Now, those of you who have been following along from week to week know that we've been just doing a lot of different interviews with different people on abortion and the culture wars and the fight for human rights, as well as, you know, historical movements and, and how we've gotten where we've gotten. Last week, I interviewed uh, Douglas Wilson, who's a pastor from Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and we kind of went through a bit of the uh, religious aspect of the abortion wars, as well as he, him discussing his experience. If any of you want to take a look at past interviews we've done with people like Douglas Wilson, with people like Dr. Clenora Hudson-Weems, who talked talk to us about civil rights, and other people like you know Peter Hitchens or Ava Schloss, who was a Holocaust survivor, then go to unmaskingchoice.ca and visit our radio program on the blog, where we put up all the radio interviews after they're done airing and you can also subscribe to us on iTunes so that you can get the radio show sent to you weekly. Now today we're interviewing a woman who essentially invented the pro-life and pro-family movement in the U.S. Her name is Phyllis Schlafly and she was born in 1924. She's an American constitutional lawyer, conservative activist, author and founder of the well-known cultural wars organization the Eagle Forum. Phyllis Schlafly received her B.A. from Washington University in St. Louis in 1944, worked her way through college on the night shift at the St. Louis Ordnance Plant, testing 30 and 50 caliber ammunition by firing rifles and machine guns, and as a laboratory technician investigating misfires and photographing tracer bullets in flight. She received her master's in government from Harvard University in 1945 and her J.D. from Washington University Law School in 1978. In 2008, she was awarded an Honorary Doctor of Humane Letters by Washington University in St. Louis. Now, what she's most famous for is her political activism because she was the one who led the 10-year battle against the principal legislative goal of the radical feminists called the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, she assembled a movement called Stop ERA, and against overwhelming odds, overwhelming opposition from three presidents, almost every single governor, the vast majority of senators and congressmen, and she succeeded. Uh, when I actually purchased the, the diaries of Ronald Reagan several years ago, uh, Reagan even talks about uh, Phyllis Schlafly in his diaries and, and notes that her goals and, and the way she went about things was, was extremely intelligent. And this is one of the things that Schlafly is re, uh, renowned for. Now, just so you really get a sense of who it is that I'm interviewing, just so you know what the context is and just how deeply embedded Phyllis Schlafly was in the culture wars and the role that she's played there. Her first book, A Choice, Not an Echo, sold three million copies in 1964 and played a major role in building the conservative movement. She led the 10-year battle to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment. As I said before, she defeated the call for a constitutional convention in the 1980s. She made the Republican Party a pro-life party by leading successful battles to put a pro-life plank in every Republican Party platform adopted at every Republican National Convention starting in 1976. She played a major role in building the anti-communist movement by starting 5,000 study groups on communism in the 50s and 60s, helping to found the Cardinal Mainzensis Foundation and by five best-selling books on the Soviet missile uh, threat. She so-called even invented the pro-family movement in 1976 by bringing people of all religious denominations into the political process, first to stop ERA, then to promote pro-life, and then as an important part of the Social Fiscal National Defense Coalition that ended up electing Ronald Reagan. She founded and built the Eagle Forum, an army of volunteers active in the political process nationwide and keeps them informed and alerted through writing the Phyllis Schlafly Report, which has been published every month since 1967. 
She's written 20 books on subjects as varied as family and feminism, and she has been forefront in the battle against left-wing secular progressivism and social liberalism since 1964. So we're really pleased to have Phyllis Schlafly join us for an interview. The first question I've got for you is that you've been a prominent leader in the, in the pro-life and pro-family movement since the 1970s. What we find uh, today, at least is what I find as a pro-life activist, is that it's often very hard to get people involved in these issues in the first place. What propelled you to get involved in social issues when so many others were not? Well, when I picked up the fight to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment, I established the ground that we fought on, and I showed them that it would not do anything good for women whatsoever, but it would take away legal rights that women then possessed. And so uh, people rallied to the cause because we had an objective and we had a plan of action. Mm -hmm. And although we had everybody who was anybody against us, uh, we were able to see that we were making progress and uh, had a goal and had a reason to be involved. Right, but even the fight to take up, you know, to fight against the Equal Rights Amendment, right, with 1973, with Roe v. Wade passing and, and the sexual revolution underway, so many moral conservatives, um, you know, stayed home and, and, and didn't get involved beyond voting. What was it that propelled you to get involved to such an extent like you did? Well, I have always believed in political action. My first book, A Choice Not an Echo, invited people to join the conservative movement. It brought millions of people into the conservative movement. And uh, I believe that the Founding Fathers gave us a self-governing country, and it's up to good people to be involved. And so I inspired people to uh, accept that responsibility and do something to save our country. Mm-hmm. When all these things were originally happening, and of course we're seeing the fallout today in this day and age, why in your view is the family so essential for a society to properly function? You cannot have limited government. The world that I grew up in uh, was based on the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. The father, provider, supporter took care of his family. We didn't look to government for any help. I grew up during the Great Depression. We didn't have any of these handouts. And most families took care of themselves. Right. But then when you start uh, getting government into the act, uh, you have a different kind of a world, and and uh, you just are not are not going to have the amount of freedom that we had uh, before that turn took, uh, came about in our country. Right. So, would you say that those who who say they're fiscally conservative but socially liberal um, are sort of adopting a self-defeating political philosophy? Well, not only that, but they're big hypocrites because if you care about the money angle. You have to ask the question, what is the money being spent on? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the federal budget, you'll find that about half of the budget is spent on social problems. Right. And the welfare spending has just grown enormously, particularly under the Obama, Obama administration. And a lot of people think that welfare just goes to unemployed people. That's not true. The majority of so-called welfare uh, goes to people who uh, earn not very much pay and who get various types of government substitutes and supplements to enhance their living level 
so when you talk about the poverty level, uh, they never add in the government handouts that are very much increasing their uh, the amount of money they have to spend. Right. So in other words, it's just sort of hypocritical to, on one hand, claim that you want to hand the money out, but on the other hand, it's being supportive of practices such as, um, you know, liberal divorce laws, abortion, and those types of things. Yes, and and the, and the handouts. Uh, you you look at the way uh, people of low incomes have their incomes enhanced by earned income tax, uh, tax credit (EITC), uh, the housing supplements, the food stamps, uh, the child care that's paid for. All of these various programs that uh, Robert Rector of Heritage has analyzed, uh, I think it's uh, uh, 79 different government programs uh, handing out money to people, which is taking them well above the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Well, when we look back at, you know, at the success of the sexual revolution and social liberalism, which um, I think people my age, I'm 25, come into contact with a lot because, you know, these days on university campuses, it's the conservatives, it's the pro-lifers that are the actual counterculture. So we've, we've, we've come full switch. When we look at, at the enormous success that the sexual revolutionaries and social liberals have had, what do you think is one of the main mistakes that we've made that's led us to this place? Well, I think it was uh, letting Kimsey and his uh, followers uh, teach courses and uh, really set the tone of the moral behavior on campuses. Mm-hmm. And it's they uh, abolished all rules of of propriety and decorum, and and it's been a tremendous change. I I think when they put uh, sex education in the elementary schools and started teaching little kids uh, how to engage in various kinds of success. That brought about uh, great cultural changes in our society. Right, because you went to uh, university obviously many years ago, and, and you're very well educated, but now you're also one of the most prominent conservative debaters on college campuses. Is the difference between the you know, university campuses um, from when you went to university as opposed to now when you debate on campuses, is there a very noticeable difference? Oh, it's tremendously different. It's tremendously different. Of course, when I went to college, it, it was in the uh, 1940s, and um, I worked my way through. Uh, I don't believe in these college loans. I, I don't think anybody owes anybody a college education. Mm-hmm. And uh, these college loans have just uh, left students with so much debt that it, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I worked a 48-hour-a-week shift. Uh, I, I worked on the night shift, or or the evening shift, and went to college in the morning. And so I didn't do anything but go to class. Right. And uh, I didn't allow time for getting into trouble or for partying. Right. So that's one of the most significant differences you see on campuses now. I, I do a lot of, of, of pro-life activism on university campuses. Um, actually, we're at Florida State University this week, and what we what we see often is that, you know, huge numbers of protesters come out. The signs have gone from being just pro-choice slogans to being very crude and profane. Has, has there just been, a, like, a shift in what's considered a, acceptable discourse, even among students on, on a place that should be a marketplace of ideas? How, how do crowds I, react to you when you debate? <laughs> crude, actually, and uh, very obnoxious, and uh, I didn't have any of that when I was on, I went to a great co-ed university, Washington University in St. Louis, mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't have any of that type. I did have fraternities and sororities, and I didn't join one, uh, but this whole thing of making college a party time, 
which a lot of them do now, is uh, I think, you know, they talk about having an alcohol problem and, and a party problem and, and a sex problem and a hookup problem and all that. Uh, th that is because the students have too much time on their hands. Right. You're passing the courses really uh, takes a, a minority of your of your uh, daytime hours, mm -hmm. and uh, they just get into trouble the rest of the time. Right. So, uh, like, like another question then following up, if you said that the greatest failure of the social conservative movement was to ensure that the education wasn't as skewed as it was when, when using things like, uh, or people, I should say, like Alfred Kinsey. What do you think one of the greatest successes the social conservative movement, the pro-life, pro-family movement, has had over the last four decades? Well, it is amazing that the, uh, I think the country is turning pro-life. I think all the polls now show that, that the majority of Americans think that abortion is wrong. Mm-hmm except in extraordinary circumstances. Mm -hmm. And this is in spite of all the establishment forces and the court decisions all teach, trying to teach us some other way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a tremendous uh, victory for the, for the uh, social conservatives. The other thing was that um, the uh, nomination and election of Ronald Reagan Right. Who is clearly the anti-establishment candidate. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party has been inflicted with the money people who are tied into the media people, uh, really controlling uh, who was nominated on the Republican ticket, and they gave us a bunch of losers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a funny, funny thing. The Republicans seem to believe in primogeniture. Uh, I thought that was something... One of the bad English ideas that we got rid of when we declared our independence from England. Right. But at any rate, the Republican Party seems to have adopted. That is, they nominate the next one in line, although he's a poor candidate, and it ends up being a loser. Right. But uh, the, the grassroots were able to overcome all of that and nominate and elect uh, Ronald Reagan for two terms. So that was a great victory. And I uh, do urge uh, Republicans to go back in and retake their party from the establishment. Right. You actually, um, as I understand it, I, I, I have uh, the diaries of Ronald Reagan uh, at home, and, and he actually mentions you in his diary. So you, you actually worked with him on some things, did you not? Yes, and he was a wonderful man. He's just like you see him on television. And when I fought the battle against the Equal Rights Amendment, he, he supported my view on that. And that, that sort of leads to what we, what we seem to have uh, recently, and I've noticed this am among people my age, is we have um, an extreme dearth of heroes, of people that we can, we can actually look up to, because there's, politicians seem to be caught uh, uh, so much up in, in, in tiny squabbles, and, and you know, the, the Congress is about as, as popular as the president is. What sort of heroes do we have from the past that you think that, that we can look up to? What sort of political leaders and, and social activists have done things that, that people in my generation uh, can take inspiration from? <laughs> well, uh, well, it is pretty hard. I, I mean, the, the sexual revolution has tarnished so many people who might be otherwise uh, those who we can look up to. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know. Ronald Reagan was a great hero, and we haven't found anybody uh, to... Uh, fill his shoes in, in more recent years. Uh, I don't know. I haven't made a choice for president next time. But we, we don't want somebody who's uh, in the same line of establishment uh, leaders we've been given before. Mm-hmm.
What sort of, you know, um, organizations do you think are doing really hard work in what seems like a very, very uphill battle, like especially here in the U.S.? It seems like, you know, the social liberals are still making progress in some areas, not, not on the issue of, of abortion, of course, but in, in other areas. And the media always tries to portray a certain air of inevitability. Um, they try to pretend that the polls have swung in their favor before they have to trick people into, you know, giving up hope and staying home. What sort of, you know, actions on the ground are happening right now? What sort of organizations uh, do you think are really having an impact? Well, I think Eagle Forum has a tremendous record of success mm-hmm. against great odds. You know, when we fought the 10-year battle against the Equal Rights Amendment, we had everybody against us. There, mm-hmm. there was nobody on our side. Even the conservatives didn't back us. Nobody thought we could win. Right. And, and still we won. And it's such a lesson uh, that the grassroots can mobilize and win. And I would say another one of our great victories uh, was taking over the Republican Party for the pro-life position. Right. When we started, the Republican Party uh, was the Nixon Party, and it was uh, pro-abortion. Mm-hmm. And we have turned it around so you can scarcely run on the Republican ticket without only saying you're pro-life. Right. And uh, so that's another one of our victories. Uh, we've also had big victories in defeating a lot of these UN treaties that, that the uh, globalists have tried to get us into. Mm-hmm. There are uh, several of them that are, uh, three or four of them that are terrible treaties, and we've played a big role in beating that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's still another, a lot of other battles to win, and we're still working at it. Right. How difficult was it actually at, at the time? Because I, as I understand it, it was it was yourself and the Eagle Forum that had the pro-life plank put in the Republican Party, as you just mentioned. How how tough was it? How toxic was the abortion issue for conservatives at the time you were fighting for it? It was a knockdown, dragout fight at uh, many of the conventions, particularly the one in Houston, the one in San Diego, the one in Philadelphia, uh, the one in New York, and... Um, the, at the beginning, the first one after Roe v. Wade was Kansas City in 1996, mm-hmm. and uh, that wasn't such a fight because we were really uh, working to try to nominate Reagan, which we were not successful at in that convention. But uh, uh, those other ones that I mentioned were tremendous battles that took all of my political skill and know-how and contacts and mobilization and, and media uh, t- uh, interviews and to win, but we uh, put in a good plank and we have kept it in ever since 1996. Right, and as you say, even people like John McCain and Mitt Romney, who who are shaky pro-lifers at best, feel feel forced to constantly say that they are pro-life, even if they're yeah. not, just because of that plank that you guys had put in so many years before. That is correct, and I see an upcoming battle now over the marriage plank. And I think we're going to have to have the same kind of battle, and I think that we're going to win, too. Is Eagle Forum working on that front as well? Yes, we are. We have, we have uh, remodeled uh, our, that organization from Republican National Coalition for Life to Republican National Coalition for Life and Marriage. Okay, so just a, a supportive of the family unit as a whole. Yes, and if you're a fiscal conservative... Just look where the money's going. Mm-hmm. The, money's, the money's going to uh, pay for the broken families who look to Big Brother government to bail them out. Mm-hmm. What is the biggest obstacle, you think, in, in today's 21st century culture to the pro, pro-life and pro-family movement succeeding? Well, I think the greatest obstacle 
basically was the media. The media is has bought into the whole uh, uh, social revolution, the, the Kinsey ideas, and and completely been taken over by the feminists. And the feminists are, I think, the most destructive element in our society. They are absolutely anti-marriage. And uh, in fact, they pick their word liberation. Mm -hmm. When feminists use the word liberation for women, they're talking about liberation from home, husband, family, and children. And they're talking about destroying the patriarchy because they think the patriarchy oppresses women. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, American women are the most fortunate class of people who ever lived on the face of the earth. They can do anything they want. What's their problem? I got my, my college degree at a great university in 1944. I got my master's at Harvard Graduate School, completely co-ed, in 1945. My mother got her college degree in 1920. What's the problem? Right. Those opportunities are always there for women. Right. They didn't take advantage of them. That's, that's their problem. I understand that um, you've had a lot of public tiffs with the feminists over the years, and even Gloria Steinem has written about you. <laughs> well, they don't like what I said, but they, they've lost. And, they, and, of course, they're mad at the world when they wake up in the morning. Right, right. Have you ever debated um, some of the more prominent feminists on the abortion issue? Uh, all of them, with the exception of Gloria Steinem, Gloria Steinem, who never dared to debate me. But all the others I've been with. Right. And well, I've, done, I've done hundreds of them on college campuses, where they had a friendly crowd. And uh, those were, some of them were quite wild experiences. Do you find that um, like when you're on college campuses, especially debating the abortion issue, that women are a lot more inclined to take your opinion than they would, for example, that of a man? Because I debate uh, um, people on university campuses all the time, and what I find is that, is that often females are more likely to take a female seriously when having that debate. Have you found that to be the case as well? I'm sorry, I just really don't understand your question. Are they more likely to, to take a, a female seriously if when? On the abortion issue? Uh, yes, probably on the abortion issue, yes. Right. One of the final questions that I wanted to ask you for this interview was just a question. Like, I'm 25 years old, and you've obviously been fighting in, in this particular battle long before I was even born. But when you're talking to activists in their early 20s, such as myself, when, you know, the media and, and, and the culture, generally speaking, were the counterculture, they tried to convince us that, you know, a lot of things are hopeless. What is the one piece of advice that you like to give, uh, you know, to the upcoming generation with sort of an uphill battle ahead of them? Well, nothing's, nothing's hopeless. Uh, that's, why, uh, that's why I do like to mention the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment. When you realize we had against us three presidents, three, president, three first ladies, about 95% of Congress, uh, there was only one senator and one House member who was willing to say a kind word for us, 99% uh, uh, of the media, Every governor, some of them ticketed against us. Uh, Hollywood, which uh, showed up uh, every chance they could yeah, uh, make it. And uh, they had the momentum and the psychology of inevitable victory, which is a tremendous factor mm -hmm. in any campaign. And we beat them all. So it's simply, uh, it's simply a tremendous example of what a small group can do uh, when you uh, stick to the facts, have good leadership, and use the system that the Founding Fathers gave us. Right, right. 
Well, uh, Mrs. Shafi, so, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. All right. Now, let me mention my uh, website. It's eagleforum.org. Eagleforum.org. And you can get more information about my books and articles and events and uh, on the website, eagleforum.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay. Have, a, gr- have a great day. Bye. Well, once again, everybody, we uh, thank you for joining us. That was Jonathan Van Maren, myself, interviewing Phyllis Schlafly of the Ego Forum. We hope you really enjoyed this interview, and we really hope you'll join us again next week at 1.30 p.m. on AM 530. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.